Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Amanda Padani on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Brotherhood of Kings, How International Relations Shaped the Ancient Near East. I don't know a lot about ancient history, and I have a lot of misimpressions about it. One of those misimpressions was that things were really very, very different then. In fact, what I learned from Amanda's book is that they weren't all that different, particularly in the realm of diplomacy. All of the institutions that Amanda describes in this book should be familiar to those of us who know a little bit about the way great powers interact today. We find embassies and treaties and a very particular kind of language. In fact, we find a lingua franca. In any event, it's really all there. And Amanda does a terrific job of describing it and analyzing it for us. So I encourage you to read this book if you're at all interested in ancient history or even interested in modern diplomacy. Without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. I should tell our listeners that uh, we're talking to Amanda Padani today, and we'll be talking about her new book, Brotherhood of Kings, How International Relations Shaped the Ancient Near East. I should say by way of introduction that I'm a huge fan of ancient history. I don't think that... uh, we, that's the royal we, we read enough of this kind of thing. I certainly don't, um, although I'm reading more and more of it. Uh, and that's largely thanks to historians such as Amanda, who did a really terrific job of taking what is really a remarkable source base, and we'll talk about that in a second, and um, doing really as much as an intelligent person can with it. Uh, we, we really should talk a little bit about the nature of these sources because it's really quite remarkable how much good information you can squeeze out of a little bit of uh, data. So, um, as I said, I really enjoyed the book, and I thank you for writing it. Thank you. Let's uh, begin the interview by having you just say a few words about yourself. Well, um, I was born in England, and I lived there until the eighth grade, moved to the U.S. in eighth grade, and um, I did my bachelor's degree at UCLA in anthropology. I was planning at that point to be an archaeologist. I uh, went to uh, the University of London, back to England, for my master's degree, also in archaeology, uh, but returned to uh, uh, UCLA, moved back to the U.S. with my husband, and um, uh, did my Ph.D. at UCLA with uh, uh, Dr. Giorgio Bucciolati as my um, doctoral advisor. And I had by that time switched to history. I had decided that having um, worked on an archaeological excavation and also having learned Akkadian, that Akkadian, which is the the language of the ancient Mesopotamians written in the cuneiform script, actually really captured my imagination much more than the uh, actual physical archaeology. I love archaeology, but I found that that working on the text was even more exciting. So I was by that time working in history and also learning the ancient languages. And uh, finished my PhD in 1988, and in 1990 I was hired as an assistant professor at Cal Poly Pomona, which is one of the CSU, uh, California State Universities in, um, in California, 
and I have been there ever since. I'm wow. now a full professor at Cal Poly. That's great. That's a that's a that's a great uh, that's a great and successful story. I, I should say. Also, and I'm, I'd be interested to know. I mean, going into ancient history is kind of a brave thing to do. We talked about this a little bit in the pre-interview because. Um, well, I guess to put it most plainly, a lot of people don't even consider it exists. They don't know it's there. How, how did you decide to do this? Yes, I think it was partly because I came in through archaeology. I must say that um, history was not my favorite subject when I was in school. Uh, but I found that I had a sort of misapprehension about what history was because I had assumed it was all about memorizing facts from books. And, of course, you know, that is not what historians do. And once um, I had a chance to read the original source material in the original languages and to understand that historians spend their lives piecing together this fascinating information, um, it, I was hooked. And I chose ancient history because the ancient world was what interested me from the beginning. That was it was because I was interested in the ancient world that I wanted to, to go into archaeology first and then into history. Um, and I think ancient history also is somewhat misunderstood uh, in, in universities by students because a lot of um, history departments only have Greek and Roman historians for the ancient world. They don't have historians of the ancient Near East or Egypt or China or India. Those tend to be in the fields of the languages. You know, you would have a Near Eastern languages department, and that's where the, the people who do ancient Near Eastern history would be. And my department is particularly enlightened, and they have, a, they have me in the history department teaching as a historian, but in this uh, field, which is so often um, more commonly dealt with as, as a philological topic, which... Um, I think will change, but I think it hasn't it hasn't changed completely yet. Yeah, I think the reason that it's associated with philology and the languages is largely historical in the sense that one of the early problems that you had, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, was in fact deciphering the um, both the script and the languages. Again, could you say a few words yes, about exactly, that? Exactly right. Yeah. I think that in Greek and Roman history had been in in history departments as well as classics because Greek and Roman, uh, Greek and Latin were never forgotten. No one had ever had to rediscover the Greek and Latin scripts and decipher them and figure out what they said. So ever since the time of the classical period, people have been studying those uh, those works. But for uh, cuneiform in my field and hieroglyphs uh, in the field of Egyptology, they were lost. They were they were completely forgotten, and nobody could read the scripts for well over 2,000 years. Oh no, that's not that's an exaggeration. Almost 2,000 years. And so that when the decipherment happened um, in the 19th century, these were fields that were, of course, dominated by philologists because they had to first figure out what all the, all the texts said, that you know, understanding the nuances of the language and the verb forms and so forth. And now that they're well understood, we can go from focusing on translation to looking at what all of these texts show us about this world. And, of course, people have been doing that ever since the decipherment. It's not as though this is, this is brand-new work. But I think... Um, in, all of the people in my field have to be trained in philology first. There's no way we can work on the text without knowing the languages. And so it's a more difficult um, uh, field for someone who's interested in history. You know, when I have students who want to do, history students, they, who want to go into graduate school, some of them are, are put off by the amount of language work they would have to do to do ancient history. And I think that also has tended to um, uh, make the field sort of slightly estranged from the historical discipline as a whole. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think that's right. That's true in Russian studies as well. There's a initial uh, deposit, so to say, that you have to make in terms of language study, which is quite significant. Um, yes. It's, yes. I think it's more, it's more significant in your field than it is in mine, because not only do you have to learn all these ancient languages, you have to learn 
I think it's absolutely essential, and I'm smiling saying it since I did it too. You have to learn German. There's a, you, can't, you cannot get by without German if you're going to do ancient studies. And French too. Yeah, right, French, yeah. So um, let me ask you this question. I think a lot of people will be curious. Are there um, cuneiform texts or texts in um, some sort of hieroglyphic script, if that's the right word, um, that are still undeciphered that you'd like to read? Are there still people working on this? Oh, yes. I don't read hieroglyphs. Disclaimer. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm not an Egyptologist. Okay. I, I, I work in tiling. Yeah, I was just asking generally about about texts, sort of ancient yeah. texts yeah, that are not. Um, there yeah. are – it's not so much – I mean, decipherment is a, is a, is a different word. I mean, the, the script as a whole is deciphered. But in terms of texts that haven't been translated, yes, there are a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there are – somebody estimated about a half a million cuneiform tablets have been Huge. Wow. Yeah, that's a and, lot. And they're, you know, in museums all over the world, um, some of them in Baghdad and in Damascus and Aleppo, but a lot of them in the British Museum and the Louvre and the Fort Asiatische Museum and, uh, you know, all over Europe and the United States, there are collections of cuneiform tablets. All, I, I would say most of the important ones have been translated. So the ones that are things like letters and... Um, um, treaties and royal inscriptions and so forth. But there are so many administrative texts mm-hmm. because the vast majority of documents written were to keep track of stuff, you know, keeping track of cows and sheep and goats and onions and bushels of barley and things like that. Um, I think I, w- I, I, would e- I don't even want to hazard a guess about how many of those haven't been actually uh, mm-hmm translated. They've mostly been catalogued so that there are catalogues saying, you know, we know this is a list of cows, but it hasn't necessarily been translated. On the other hand, that is a very specific and interesting field, but but very specialized because people Mm -hmm. who do those kinds of work on um, studies of, you know, how many sheep were were in in the herds belonging to a particular palace, they tend to look at the documents as a whole group rather than doing individual studies of a particular tablet of, you know, this, these sheep on this particular day, they'll look at how many um, um, sheep or goats or whatever were coming into a temple in a particular month, in a particular year. And so they're looking at it almost more statistically in some cases than, than looking at it philologically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned in the pre-interview uh, a fellow that I met because I know his son's well, uh, Wolfgang Heimpel, and I had a discussion with him in the 80s while I was in history graduate school about what he did, and he described a lot of those texts. He said mm-hmm. that um, he spent a lot of his trying trying to decipher uh, how many sheep were taken to the, uh, the the temple and that that kind of thing. He's a he's a philologist, I guess, isn't he? Right. Yeah, yes, he is, but you know, very good historian. As yeah, well. no, cer- certainly that's right. No, I, re- I remember it's funny because some conversations really stick with you, and I remember the conversation I had with him. This was in the eighties, and it was mm-hmm. it was mind blowing. I have to tell you, it was absolutely mind blowing talking to him. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this book, and let me start the discussion with an impression that I had. Okay. That, um, I've, I've studied uh, ancient history a little bit, uh, not, not terribly much, but one of the things that uh, I, um, I guess, inferred, or maybe you say it in the book, I don't know, is that it's um, it's as if the system that you describe emerges um, almost full blown in the record because of the invention of writing. In other words, let me put it differently to draw an analogy. It's as if something is ongoing and all of a sudden the camera is invention, I- invented and we have a picture of it. 
That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly because right. yeah, and this was really I, I I did not realize this. This was this was a well worked out system prior to writing, and then writing appears, and there it is. Yes. Yeah. So maybe you could just talk about what system that is and how writing captured it. Yes. What the, this is an era um, we're looking at about 2300 BCE when we get the first evidence, and as you say, that's when the camera comes on. That's when we can see what's going on. And around 2300 BCE, in what is now Iraq and Syria, there were a number of smallish kingdoms. They weren't tiny. They were um, kingdoms that had a, a capital city and then a number of towns and villages within that, that uh, kingdom, sometimes referred to as a city-state. And these city-states um, in the south, in what is uh, referred to as Sumer, which is southern um, Iraq, and in central um, uh, Iraq, which is Akkad, A-K-K-A-D, and, and then in the north, which was Syria. This, these um, kingdoms were sometimes at war with one another, and sometimes they clearly needed allies, and they were in contact with one another. And what we can see when they start writing about it is that they had a, a developed system for creating these alliances and even for communicating with kingdoms that were beyond their uh, range of, of local enemies or allies, but, but kingdoms with which they had um, what we would recognize as diplomatic contact. And the system that had developed was that a king in, in a particular kingdom had um, messengers, and they called them messengers, or they used the term you know, in their language for messenger, but the, the role had varied from a simple courier to somebody who we would regard as a sort of secretary of state. These were, there were some very high-ranking people who still had the same title. And the, the highest ranking of these men, and they were all men, um, would travel between the capital cities, taking letters with them. Now, and before they had letters, presumably they simply took oral messages, and that's uh, almost certainly what the case was. So the king would tell his messenger, go to my neighbor so-and-so and tell him this and, and work out... Um, various you know, problems they might have and come back and tell me what happens. And these uh, messengers would then go not just with the, the, the message, but they also took gifts. This was an important part of the communication and, in fact, between the relationship that they would take extravagant gifts from their king and would request, in some cases, a, a specific gift from the king that they were writing to. And so that king would then ret return the favor, send back the gift that had been requested, or if there wasn't a request, would send back something that he spontaneously decided that his ally would want. And that these, um, these were, were regular uh, transmissions between the, the two courts. And if they were um, allies, they seemed to have had formal uh, agreements again, before writing, about what uh, this agreement concerned, whether it was that they would support one another if one was attacked or if there was a rebellion within the kingdom that they would send troops or that, um, um, you know, anything along those lines, those were, even the treatment of the messengers, we know, was, was determined. So if the messenger arrived and, and was detained for more than a certain number of days, then it was the, the foreign king had to provide the food and, and the... Um, uh, maintenance for the messenger who arrived. All of this was apparently formally in place. And then they started using writing to reflect it. And so the frustration in terms of writing this book is I would love to write a book about how diplomacy developed, but we don't know because mm -hmm. it was before they started writing about it. Mm -hmm. The first letters, the first diplomatic letters that survive show that this system was in place. There's a letter from uh, a city in Syria called Ebla, 
that's considered to be the first diplomatic letter, and I think sometimes that's misinterpreted to mean that this is the letter that started diplomacy, but it wasn't at all. It's a, a letter that shows a very um, developed and organized system, and it's... Actually, let me read it to you, because I have it right here. Oh, great. Um, this is a translation by uh, uh, Peter Michalowski at, uh, um, in Michigan. He writes... Um, this, uh, he doesn't like, he translates it, but the, the, uh, the letter goes this way. It says, thus says Ibubu, and Ibubu is the name, the steward of the palace of the king to the envoy. I am your brother and you are my brother. And this thing about brotherhood, again, is also something that had developed prior to the writing of the letters, that equals were considered to be brothers. That was the way that they said we're equals. And so here's one, you know, you could think of it as a sort of secretary of state speaking to the other secretary of state saying we're brothers, we're equals. And he says, what is appropriate to brothers, whatever desire you express, I shall grant, and you, whatever desire I express, you shall grant. So he's saying that this, um, this is what allies do, and they didn't have a term for allies, they used the term brother. And he said, this is what brothers do, I ask you for things, you send them, you ask me for things, and I send them. And then he says, may you deliver to me the finest quality, equids, and we don't know what kind, it's some sort of a uh, donkey or mm -hmm. omnivore or something like that. And then he repeats, you are my brother and I am your brother. And they keep saying this over and over again, you know, reminding them, we're allies. Therefore, I, Ibubu, have given you, the envoy, ten wagon ropes and two boxwood wagons. So he's saying, this is what you've asked for, I'm sending it. And he says, Irkab Damu, the king of Ebla, is the brother of Zizi, the king of Hamazi. So now they're establishing which are the two kingdoms that are allied. And one is Ebla, and the other one is Hamazi, which is apparently in northern Mesopotamia. And he says, it repeats backwards, Zizi, the king of Hamazi, is the brother of Yaqab Damu, king of Ebla. So repeating, you know, in both directions, we are allies, we're mm -hmm. brothers. And at the end it says, Yaqab Damu, the king of Ebla, and the scribe Tira'il have dispatched the goods to the envoy. And that, you know, just in that one letter, you can see, they've already said, determined that brotherhood exists, this idea of diplomacy of alliance between the kings. That the, it's based on, at this point, because these are very distant kingdoms from one another, sending one another luxury goods sending them via the uh, envoys, the messengers, and that the scribe is involved. The scribe, Tira Eel, who's mentioned, obviously, was the one who, who wrote the letter. And the, this letter would have gone with the, um, with the envoy, with the, the, the boxwood wagons and the ropes. They would have gone off on um, this long journey to Hamazi. When they arrived there, clearly they weren't, you know, arriving for the first time wondering, what do we do? They must have been accepted by the palace as, you know, oh, here they are again, our, our messengers from Ebla. They spoke different languages, so there must have been a translator involved who would have uh, read this letter aloud to the uh, king in um, in Hamazi, who in turn would have um, found those equids that they'd asked for and sent those back. So this is an established system, and yet it's the first letter we have that provides evidence of it. So it's, it's uh, fascinating and yet somewhat frustrating that we don't see the earlier stages in it. Well, one of the more remarkable things about reading your book and realizing this is uh, I've actually studied... Um, the uh, the growth of the European diplomatic system in the 14th and 15th century, and especially as it concerned Russians, um, and uh, the 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 rituals and documents and the language are, are I won't say they're quite identical. That wouldn't be right, but they are awfully similar. Isn't it bizarre? It's it really is really bizarre. <laughs> yeah. and you know what's even stranger is that they, just as in the European system, they had um, diplomatic marriage as a very important crucial. Yeah. Yeah, part no. of this. And that's also right from the beginning. So even though it's not mentioned in that letter, um, we have the kings in Ebla marrying off their daughters to other uh, kings. 
Yeah. So, for example, the king of Ebla, one of his daughters married the king of Kish. Kish was a very important kingdom way away from, from Ebla, a long, long way away, hundreds of miles away in northern Mesopotamia. And uh, she you know, had a dowry, and, and that cemented the alliance between those two states, that they had a diplomatic marriage between them. And that's true, of course, through so much of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely true in the European context, as anybody that studied European history knows. Uh, but it's really... The, the parallels are, are, are quite r- remarkable. Uh, it, it's, uh, I was, it was very eye-opening to me to see uh, how similar this is. And, uh, you know, this is an independent development. Um, the, these things developed in a similar way in different places. You know, the analogy being something like, um, you know, parallel evolution or something like that in, in a biological <laughs> analogy. Um, yeah. But because but, uh, the Russians knew nothing about any of this. Yeah. They, they had to learn it from the Europeans. Uh, and the Europeans I were inventing wonder, it. Yeah. I do wonder if there wasn't a thread of it that continued, you know, that although it seemed to have been lost and had to be reinvented, if there wasn't some, you know, hidden connection. Yeah, well, we'd have to, you know, it would be interesting to look at uh, cases of independent development of this kind of thing. I don't know if there are new world cases of it. I don't know if the scholars of the Incas and the Aztecs and the Olmecs have, have looked at or have the documents that are necessary to uh, d- determine exactly how uh, diplomacy was practiced. But there does seem something quite elemental about it. And, and while we're talking about elemental things, this language about um, brotherhood, mm-hmm. uh, it, it springs to mind in a lot of places independently. Do we find any, uh, is there is there any other language that they use? You say they didn't have a word for ally other than brother. Oh, um, they did. They, they didn't have all that many words for abstracts that we would think of. You know, that they they tended to... Um, so I, I suppose they thought of this term brotherhood, which in Sumerian was namshesh, that... I, I suppose it came to be thought of as an abstract, perhaps, but it started out as, you know, the, the um, being a brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the time they were using it in this term, clearly they weren't brothers. I mean, it wasn't that they were in any way biologically related to one another. It was that they were um, they were equals, and I suppose mm-hmm. brother is the is the classic equal. But they later they had a whole hierarchy of relationships, all ter- in terms of family or phrased in terms of family relations, so that a greater king was a father and a lesser king was a son. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could, as a king, sort of move around on this hierarchy. Uh, You could move up if you became more important into being one of the brothers of the great kings, or you could be demoted and you could become a son of one of the great kings, which was always something that they resented terribly. Um, But they, they had some sort of... And it must have been um, not, uh, it was a spoken negotiation because at one point we have a king who complained that he had been told, you must now write to me as son instead of father. (laughs) And uh, that, or instead of brother, rather. And so, you know, this king complained, I'm not your son and I'm not the son of the man you've told me to write to as father. I'm I'm his equal. And Hammurabi, as it happened, the king of Babylon, uh, replied, no, no, you know, you are no longer in that role. I mean, I'm paraphrasing completely, obviously, here, but but he was saying, no, you are now a lesser king. You are the son of the king that you formerly thought of as a brother. So it was it was a complicated system, and even though the terms seem very concrete and not abstract, they, they had uh, definite clear meanings uh, to the people who used them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So um, there are many, many uh, directions we could go with the interview at this point. I mean, there are lots of things to discuss. One, one of them uh, that I'm interested in is, is language. Um, let's, if we can, 
up to the extent that we can, let's sort of set the scene a little bit in terms of linguistic groups. Um, what were they? Yes, in southern Mesopotamia, they spoke a language called Sumerian. Um, Sumerian is unrelated to any modern language, so it's not in a group that we would recognize today. Oh, great. <laughs> it's a very difficult language. And it's... Uh, um, it challenged even the Akkadian scribes who had to learn it because it was very different from their language. Uh, and in central Mesopotamia, they spoke a language called Akkadian uh, because um, the region is called Akkad, um, which is Semitic, and it, therefore it's it's much easier to it was easier to decipher in the first place. It's it's easier to make sense of because it's related to modern Semitic languages like Arabic and Hebrew, and then. Further north, in the region of Ebla that I was talking about, they spoke a, another Semitic language that um, that is called Eblaite, and uh, this again, as a Semitic language, is relatively well understood. Uh, Sumerian is also well understood, partly because the Akkadian scribes, in order to learn Sumerian, would make um, lists of words in Sumerian and give their Akkadian translations, and so. A lot of the decipherment of Sumerian was made possible by the fact that they had these lexical lists uh, written by the Akkadian scribes who also had to learn Sumerian because it was a dead language by about 2000 BCE. Mm -hmm. and they, but they continued to use it. I mean, it was, it was a language of law and a language of religion, and so it needed to be used in certain contexts even though nobody was speaking it at home. And so they had to have sort of um, tools in order to learn Sumerian, and those tools help scholars today as well to understand what uh, how Sumerian was... Um, was understood. Those are the two chief languages in, or chief language groups in Mesopotamia and Syria. But within this whole international world, of course, they also were in contact with the people of Anatolia. Mm -hmm. And in Anatolia, they spoke uh, Indo-European languages, the, the um, most uh, dominant of which was Hittite. And Hittite is the first Indo-European language to be written down. It's not in any way the earliest Indo-European language. And of course, um, English and German and French and everything, those are also Indo-European, as is uh, Greek and Latin. Um, but Hittite was the first one to be written down, and that makes it very interesting for uh, specialists in Indo-European studies to see what you know, forms were being taken, what, what were uh, verb forms and, and so forth, when the Hittites wrote. Um, there were a couple of other Indo-European languages also spoken in Anatolia. And then Egypt had its own language. Um, and as I say, I'm not an Egyptologist, but as I understand it, that is related to some extent to uh, Semitic languages, but also to African languages. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different languages being spoken. Oh, and I almost forgot, in uh, Syria, there's another major language called Hurrian. And again, Hurrian um, is really a sort of standalone language. It's, it's one that is... Uh, um, not clearly related to any of the language groups that are in use today. And way over in the east, uh, in what is now Iran, they spoke a language called Elamite, again, a language that's not very well understood. So a whole lot of different languages being spoken in this region, and yet over time they came to be in contact with one another and to communicate. And the way they did it was they used, they had a lingua franca. Mm -hmm. They decided at some point, and I can explain why, actually, I think I know why, um, that Akkadian, the language of Mesopotamia, would be the lingua franca. And so no matter who was writing to whom, they would write in Akkadian. Mm -hmm. So you get the king of Egypt writing to the king of Hatti, neither of whom spoke Akkadian. But they would have their scribes write in Akkadian to one another because they would have 
translators at both courts who could who could translate from Akkadian into their own language and from their own language into Akkadian, and so that made it possible for them to to communicate. Mm-hmm. And um, this also suggests that this is well that there was a lot of movement between these places. Now I say a lot. Is there any way to quantify that or make it more exact that that people mm, were no. moving back and forth? Numbers of people, no. I, I don't think there's any way to quantify it. But but we could because there's. I mean. One could guess at how many people were traveling for the uh, court, mm-hmm. but there must have been a lot of other people who were traveling that we don't have any record of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there, approximately um, once a year, we know, in at least by the uh, period around, um, excuse me, 1400 BCE, it was about once a year that um, messengers would travel from one court to the other, at least once a year, sometimes mm-hmm. more often. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that would just be a handful of people with an armed guard, and sometimes it would be hundreds of people. So, for example, when a, a royal wedding took place, and, say, the princess of Mitanni in Syria was traveling to the court of the king of Egypt, she traveled with 300 attendants. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one text that suggests, you know, thousands of Egyptian guards would have accompanied them. I think it's an exaggeration. I think the king was sort of... Uh, um, saying, making it sound as though it was a bigger group of Egyptians than, than, than that was actually the case. But, but still, hundreds of Egyptian guards certainly would have accompanied her. And this would have been a massive number of people traveling, you know, with all the dowry and the gifts and the uh, chariots and horses. I mean, it could, that would have been huge. Um, so it really varied depending on the, on the reason for the, the, the visit, how many people would, would have been on the move. But a lot of people moving, yes, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I'm sorry, to, I, I kind of derailed us here. I can explain to you how Latin became the lingua franca of European diplomacy. How, how did Akkadian become the lingua franca of, of what, what do we call this area? Do we call it the Near East? Or Near is East, there, yeah. Yeah, the Near East. Uh, the, how did Akkadian become the, the lingua um, franca? It seems to have become the lingua franca because it was the Akkadian speakers who invented the system. Um, that these, from these very earliest letters, um, they, they were... Um, written in, well, to start with, probably Sumerian in the south. We don't have any letters from the south, but almost certainly they were written in, in Sumerian. But by the time um, the the system spread beyond Mesopotamia, the language of Mesopotamia was, was Akkadian. And therefore, when the Hittites were first introduced to the system and the Egyptians were first introduced to the system, the language in which the system existed already was Akkadian. And therefore, rather than... Um, sort of changing the system in order to incorporate these these countries, they adopted it wholesale. They adopted it surprisingly wholesale, especially given how powerful and important Egypt was. I think one of the surprises is, is in 1420, when the Egyptians, around 1420, when they became part of this international system, they agreed to write in cuneiform, on clay tablets. They agreed to all of the formalities, the, the same sort of introduction to the letters, the, the sending of gifts, the, even the agreement of, uh, that they were equals of the other kings, which up until that time, no Egyptian king had said he was equal of anybody. Um, so this was a system that existed already that was introduced to these other countries, and therefore they, they um, adopted the language with which the system worked, you know, that was part and parcel of the system that they were adopting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. And was uh, cuneiform developed in uh, Akkadia? Or, or, uh, was it, uh, Akkadian? Well, yeah. Where, 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 does, where does the actual script come from? I guess that's the my question. The script comes from southern Mesopotamia, and uh-huh. it was first invented... Actually, we don't know what language it was first invented for, because when they first started writing, 
um, what became the cuneiform system, they wrote symbols for numbers and symbols for nouns that are independent of language, you know, just as the number one, you know, the numeral one or the numeral two could be read in any language. Sure. So, you know, a symbol for a sheep, we don't know what language it was in. There's nothing phonetic about that yeah. symbol. Um, and that was around 3200 BCE. Mm-hmm. But by the time they were writing any sort of language, it was Sumerian. That was the language that cuneiform first represented once, mm-hmm. you know, once they started adding phonetic markers and things that we can sort of identify and started writing some words out phonetically. The language was Sumerian. So presumably, it was, it's, um, it was invented to, to write Sumerian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then once Sumerian started going out of use, the Akkadian, if Sumerian and Akkadian had been spoken in Mesopotamia ever since um, the very earliest writing. So it's not that Akkadian somehow came in as an invading language and overthrew Sumerian. They had, there were um, indications right from the very earliest text written in Sumerian that Akkadian was the other language of the region because some of the scribes already had Akkadian names. Um, but over time, Sumerian went out of use and Akkadian took over. At that point, cuneiform was um, being used to write Akkadian. Mm-hmm. And unlike Egyptian hieroglyphs, where I think, as far as I know, hieroglyphs are only ever used to write the Egyptian language. Mm-hmm. But cuneiform was used to write many, many languages. It was used for, for Sumerian, it was written, used for Akkadian, it was used for Eblite, it was used for Hittite, it was used for Elamite. They used the same script, but all these different languages could be expressed in it, just as we use the Roman script to express you know, all modern languages. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was this, it was a very versatile writing system, and so even though it had developed for one particular language, it could be adapted to the languages that were spoken all over the Near East. Yeah. We, we, I don't know. For some reason, Americans don't generally think of uh, scripts as independent from languages. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, it's funny because I remember when I was in high school, I grew up in the Midwest, and um, there was a kid from uh, – I, I don't know where he was from, actually. I think it was from Serbia. But uh, the, the, he, he knew the Cyrillic alphabet, and uh, I, I couldn't really wrap my mind around it. <laughs> I, didn't, exactly. I just didn't really understand how there could be any script other than the Latin script. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, the same is true, you know, I don't know about the ancient world, but the same is true of Hebrew, for example. I mean, it gets used to, uh, uh, it gets used to express lots of different languages eventually. And then, of course, the Latin script gets used to express a lot of uh, different languages. I think it's, a, it's sort of an important thing to, to, uh, to dwell on. Can I ask you... Um, about this fellow Sargon of Akkad, that's his mm-hmm. name, right? Uh, he right. seems a little bit like um, uh, a, he was a big personality in the ancient he world. Was. Yeah, yeah, he was. A, he was kind of the first big personality, was he? Uh, is he? Um, well, he, and Gilgamesh too. Okay, uh, Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh sure. Is also, but we're not one hundred percent sure. Gilgamesh. Was there really a Gilgamesh though? I mean, isn't that? It's not. Enkidu and Gilgamesh. I remember yeah, this. And yeah, we don't really know if they were. Yeah, but Sargon, he existed. He did exist. Yeah, um, Sargon existed, and he was he was a a very big figure because he did a number of things that no one had done before, one of which was to create an empire in um, that united all of Mesopotamia and Syria, um, as he put it, from the lower sea to the upper sea, the lower sea being the Persian Gulf and the upper sea being the Mediterranean. And so this was a vast area. If you think about you know, the size of the, the kingdoms that had existed prior to that time, there might have been you know a dozen um, quite large kingdoms that were conquered by Sargon in order to unite this, perhaps even 20, uh, you know, a, a lot of kingdoms that he united in order to, to create this empire. And he was someone who was remembered for over a thousand years as this great hero, you know, 1,500 years, um, 
in Mesopotamian history that they re- they told the story of Sargon over and over again, and they created something called the Sargon Legend, which gave him a sort of almost miraculous birth, and um, uh, that he was placed in a basket and um, by his mother, who bore him in secret, and that he was found by a gardener and brought up, and the goddess Ishtar loved him and made him king. You know, all of this wonderful uh, mythological stuff, and. Presumably, none of that was true. I mean, that's, that part of it isn't recorded from Sargon's own lifetime. That that was a sort of overlay that came on later that gave him a, a sort of miraculous background. But he did um, not just conquer and create an empire and managed to maintain an empire, which, if you think about the logistics of the ancient world, is pretty amazing because you know, have, trying to control a region hundreds of miles away from your capital city when you have no fast communication system. I, I can't control things in my front yard. So. <laughs> I know. <the> <laughs> exactly. No, he was, he, he was an impressive guy. Um, but he also, uh, he really looked outward a lot. He looked outward in terms of you know, wanting to create an empire, but also in terms of trade, because there's a, a, um, a document from his reign that describes that he had boats come to his capital of Akkad, he had boats come from as far away as um, uh, uh, Dilmun, which is what is now Bahrain, Magan, which is now Oman, and Maluha, which is now the Indus Valley. So, you know, these are ships that came from thousands of miles, at, at just enormous distances to hundreds, over a thousand miles in the case of the Indus Valley, to come to um, Akkad with the goods that they brought from there, uh, from, from those regions. So, this was a time when, if not diplomatic relations, at least trade relations extended very, very, very widely. Um, it's the first reference to this land of Maluha, the Indus Valley, comes from from Sargon's time, and it's not just it's not you know that he was just bragging. There's evidence archaeologically that there was indeed this connection between the Indus Valley and Mesopotamia in the time of Sargon, where goods were, were traveling in both directions, uh, and so. He was he was sort of opening up the world, I think, to some extent, um, in terms of trade and and conquest. He's not particularly big on diplomacy, as far as we know. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence for treaties or anything like that from Sargon's time, but that may be because, frustratingly, his capital city has never been found. So this really, no. How do you no. like that? I know it's one of the great uh, undiscovered sites. What are you doing this fall? I, you know, I was thinking maybe we could go look for it because <laughs> I, you know, classes are about to start here, and I just um, really I'm already tired. <laughs> yeah, we would not be the first. <laughs> no, I imagine not, and we probably wouldn't find it, but we'd have no, fun. No, I, I, I think I think that it's it's a real puzzle because Akkad was clearly an important capital, but it wasn't necessarily occupied for a very long time because just during the reigns of the kings of. Uh, Sargon and his successors, do you get a lot of references to Akkad? So it may not have left a, a huge mound. You know, that most of the cities that were occupied for thousands of years are marked in the Near East by occupation mounds, mm-hmm. where clearly there's, you know, a lot of evidence of, of human habitation. Possibly Akkad didn't exist long enough to create a huge mound, and so it would be very hard to see on the landscape. Mm-hmm. It could be mm-hmm. just under a field somewhere. Um, or it could be, and some scholars have suggested, that it was an existing city that was simply had its name changed mm-hmm. during uh, Sargon's time, and therefore it could be in an you know it could be a city that we already know about, but that uh, he changed the name of possibly. Oh, just like the Soviet Union. <laughs> 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 but You're looking event, for Stalingrad. You won't find it. <laughs> no, right, right, right. Yeah. He, um, 
But he, so because his palace hasn't been found, because his capital hasn't been found, we have no archives of Sargon's time at all. And so perhaps some of these uh, things like diplomacy or even the administration of his uh, empire would become much clearer if if only the capital was to be found. But uh-huh. Uh-huh. I see. So he must have disrupted the diplomatic system. Did his disruption of it have any permanent effect, or did things uh, revert after his uh, after the collapse of the Akkadian Empire or his Akkadian Empire? Yeah, it survived. The, the diplomatic system survived just fine, which suggests that he probably was still using it. We know that his grandson, Naram Sin, um, who was also king and also a very um, um, successful king, uh, Naram Sin had a treaty with um, with a kingdom in the east in what is now Iran, and that, that treaty survived. So it, it shows that he was still using, for a region that he hadn't, um, directly conquered that he was he was allied in some way with it he seems to have been the superior partner in this alliance but he doesn't seem to have actually conquered the region and uh, so that treaty shows that, that he was still maintaining um, clearly you know, ambassadors must have gone off to this region to, to forge the treaty and so forth so probably it still existed in Sargon's time too I don't think it, that he abandoned it mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that um, he conquered some regions but clearly he didn't conquer everywhere and the regions that he didn't conquer he probably did manage to continue to, um, mm-hmm. to maintain the diplomatic system because mm-hmm. it, it, when it reemerges, it, it's still the same system mm-hmm. I see I see let me ask a question about parallels again I know that in the European case um there was a fellow and his name was Caesar and then people started to call themselves Caesar who were not Caesar and then Caesar became a title. Uh, So for example, uh, the Russian uh, leader uh, started to call himself Caesar sometime around 1500 and he borrowed this practice from the West and what Caesar meant was what we call emperor and that is king of kings. Uh Is there any similar sort of uh, uh, title in in this world and did did anyone say I'm the new... uh, Sargon of Akkad or anything like that? Well, Sargon's name was... His, his name means true king. That, that's oh, is that right? Okay, yes. well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, he, he, it probably wasn't the name he was given at birth since he usurped the throne, okay. probably. So uh, whatever he was called at birth was dropped, and he... And, oh, yeah, and, I remember this in the book now, yeah. Right. I'm sorry. I, so yeah. he has this name. Um, it's actually Sharukin in uh, mm-hmm. Akkadian, and, which means true king. Mm-hmm. And... And the later king, a much later king, in it's a couple of them in the Assyrian period, um, took the same title, Sharukin, and in sort of tribute to Sargon, but as their name rather than than as a title. Not right. Like so this is like the Christ. Yeah, I mean, right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there really is only one here, and everybody else is subsidiary. Right. Um, to, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but 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 um, it, it didn't become a kind of standard political institution in the Near East at this time. This notion of a king of kings. I mean, they had the term, well, they had a number of titles um, that one king would adopt and the others would adopt if they had aspirations to be as powerful as him. So, for example, back in the what, the early dynastic period, the period around you know 2300, um, the the title King of Kish was a very important title because the city of Kish was such an important city that a king who had sort of aspirations to rule all of Mesopotamia would call himself King of Kish, even sometimes when he didn't actually rule Kish. It was just that became the sort of important title. And um, and they got more and more grandiose, so that eventually, you know, you have a title like King of the Four Quarters of the Universe being used, um, which was, uh, you know, an exaggeration to our mind, but 
not necessarily all that much an exaggeration to their minds because they didn't know how big the universe was. And when you had a king who managed to create an empire that was most of the known world in their minds, it, it wasn't that big of a stretch mm-hmm. to own something as a universe. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Let me... Um ask a question that I sort of forgot to ask because, as I said, I'm a little bit fuzzy not having slept a lot last night, but I'm really interested in this. I have worked with clay a little bit. I think most people have. And the um, clay pieces that I worked with, I can tell you they're all broken. <laughs> they're not, they do not exist anymore. Uh, and uh, so if they were, if anything were written on them, they would not be legible now. It, it seems to me that the... Uh, could you talk a little bit about the, um, the actual um, art of working up these tablets and how they made them and the... the, the uh, the way in which the uh, the way in which they wrote with I guess their styluses is that what mm-hmm. they're called because this doesn't sound I mean we shouldn't think of pot throwing and things like this. Well, no, it's you know it's interesting you say that because for the longest time I had studied this stuff and I'd worked you know with holding cuneiform tablets and looking at them and reading them and so forth and I had never tried writing on clay myself and then I had a sixth grade teacher ask me <laughs> could you get the kids you know to write on clay and I thought oh sure that'd be fun. <laughs> So I went out and I bought the clay, you know, from a, a art store, and I got some um, little chopsticks, you know, that I cut sure. really fine so, to make so they could make the uh, the incisions. And my gosh, it's hard to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's really a we when we write cuneiform, we write it out with you know ink on paper. We we don't <laughs> try writing it in clay, and it, it is surprisingly difficult. Um, it's the other thing that we discovered in doing this with a class, and I've now done it with several is that the scribes must all have been right-handed because the left-handed kids simply couldn't do it. How do you like you that? Have to, you have to contort your hand to such an extent that it's actually almost impossible as far as I can see. I think you should publish a paper in science on that. That's the kind of thing they like. <laughs> no, really, true. I think that's you could true. put together a few paragraphs and yeah. that would appear in science. Experimental archaeology, yeah. no left-handed scribes. But, um, but no, what they would do is that they would create these tablets. I think uh, a lot of people have a miss. Um, a, a sort of misunderstanding about the size of the tablets. Most of them are quite small. Yeah. In fact, some of them are tiny. There's a letter that um, that I was working on for another book that's you know barely bigger than a postage stamp. I mean, that they, the cuneiform could be written in such unbelievably small. Uh, the signs could be so unbelievably small that these letters could be could be minute. Most of them, though, were you know three inches maybe on a side. Mm-hmm. Still very small. Um, Occasionally, though, you get a, a really enormous letter, like this one that I describe in the book, where the the king um, of Mitanni was was feeling he was in a particularly um, expensive mood, and he wrote this he dictated this letter that ended up being on a tablet 18 inches tall, an enormous great tablet. But most of them, no, there's nothing like that. So most of the tablets, then they would take, and it's really fine clay that they would use, mm-hmm. so that every mark would be from the stylus, not from some inclusion in the clay. Mm-hmm. And um, and they had very sharp pointed stylus that they would impress in the clay. They didn't draw it through the clay. They, they made little impressions of the sharp edge of the stylus. So it was like almost a, um, like a, not a razor blade, but, but you know, about the size of a razor blade, perhaps, with a slightly triangular end, so that it makes these, tri- these um, triangular ends for the wedges that make it so that characteristic of cuneiform. Mm-hmm. And they seem to have been able to take dictation because there are references in to scribes taking dictation so that even though in some cases a sign might have nine or ten wedges just to reflect what we would think of as two letters or three letters, that they, they could go very fast. Um, they would wait till the clay was somewhat hardened because it seems that the, there's not a lot of, for example, thumbprints and fingerprints on these so that they don't 
uh, it's not really soft clay at the time that they were writing on it. And they would, uh, they wrote from left to right and top to bottom just as we do by the time the script was fully developed. And, um, and then they would leave the, once the letter was finished, they would put it out in the sun to dry. Occasionally they would bake them if they were really important, they would bake them in a kiln. Mm-hmm. And then um, sometimes they would put a, a clay envelope around the tablet so mm-hmm. that to protect it. And because the clay envelope was made separately from the tablet, if you cracked the envelope, it didn't crack the tablet, it would just crack the envelope off it. Mm-hmm. And then um, this would be, there are some references to it being put in a pouch, that there seems to have been a pouch that the scribe would wear around his neck if it was a small enough tablet, and they would then carry it to the place that they were delivering it. And for letters, uh, royal letters, although as you say, clay breaks very easily, they, they, um, they had archives in the palaces, so they would keep an archive of the letters that they'd received in some cases on shelves, but in some cases they would have a basket, you know, because they small tablets really didn't lend themselves to being stacked on shelves, and so they would have a basket of them, or a large jar, a large um, pot that they would put the, the tablets in, and they would keep them uh, for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yes, but some of them, as you say, when they're uncovered, they're often broken, yeah. and that's that means that sometimes one has a piece of a letter, but not the whole thing, or you have two pieces and there's a big chunk missing. So sometimes we have to kind of guess what would have been in the broken part. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, we, we should say that for those people who are interested, you, you can actually go, um, you mentioned it in the book, you can go to, I think it's room 55 in the uh, British Museum, and you can see these things. Well, the one that I, I wrote, yeah, I decided um, there's, there's this funny sort of magic about the actual text itself. I don't, I mean, it's probably silly of me to say that, but but when you actually see the document in person and you know that's the one, that's the one that, that was written you know, from the King of Mitanni to the King of Egypt and it has this incredible history, this, yeah. this actual object in front of you. Um, that was what I tried to capture in the first chapter, just uh, to kind of did. get a sense of it. <laughs> you did. Uh, but, uh, in fact, I was just in London and I went to visit the tablet just to, to sort of I, I go visit it whenever I'm there because I just think it's incredible <laughs> that there are these yeah. really very old things that you can still read. I just think right, it's right. mind-blowing. Um, and that one, in, and you know, a lot of them, that one is an example of it, is in perfect condition. Yeah. Not a scratch on it. I mean, you can read it as if it was written yesterday. Yeah. And But some of them, especially the ones that weren't baked, um, can be very hard to read. Yeah, I've got I've got documents on my computer in old versions of things like WordStar. <laughs> no one will ever read them again. That's it. They're done. Yeah, yeah I wrote my PhD they're, they're 15 in years old. You know, oh, so they're done. Gosh, yeah. No, you can't even get them. So let me ask a couple other silly medievalist questions. I, I don't know that our listeners will find them as silly as I do, but uh, you know, often when you work with medieval documents, as I have, uh, you find things other than the script on them, and, and and people doing kind of playful things. And I wondered if you find these on the cuneiform. Uh, tablets or on the clay tablets. One is a uh, is marginalia. Hmm. Is there any such Sometimes. thing as mar- not much? No, um, because once it was baked, there wasn't much you could do yeah, to it. Yeah, right, exactly. You couldn't really add to it. Uh-huh. Uh, and in fact, that was one reason why they did bake them because they didn't want them to be messed with. Sure. Um, a few of the documents found in the Amarna archive had um, Amarna. I'm sorry, Amarna is where in the place in Egypt where they found a collection of letters that have been written by kings to the king of Egypt in cuneiform. And some of them are from the great kings, from Babylon and from Hathi and so forth. Uh And others are from regional kings and princes within the Egyptian empire. Uh So the the majority of them actually are from within the Egyptian empire. And on some of those, there are some ink um, sort of annotations uh, to... That, that kind of apparently helped people read what was written in the cuneiform. And one of them has a date written in uh, the Egyptian script in ink on it. But not much. No, they, they, 
they, um, the one thing one does find other than script on the tablets are sometimes um, seal impressions, mm-hmm. especially for legal documents, yeah, sure. because they didn't have the idea of a signature. There was no such thing. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted to um, confirm that you had indeed you know, witnessed a particular contract or, or something like that, besides having your name listed on the, on the text as a witness, uh, you might be asked to impress your seal on the um, the edge on the margin of the of the legal contract, and sometimes seals are found on a number of different kinds of, of documents to sort of reflect that the person who is mentioned was in fact there because mm-hmm. the seal was there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So this leads me to question the second, uh, which I think you've already answered in a way. Um, so there's no doodling. No, no, they didn't doodle. Um, I know, frustratingly, really. The, the, one of the things that really strikes me about these tablets is, for the most part, how beautifully they're written. I mean, sometimes we complain about their handwriting because it's hard to read, but, um, but for the most part, they were pretty careful. And and no, there's not. A, I can't even think of a single doodle uh, on a cuneiform tablet. There are some. There are some doodles on things like um, bricks that were used for um, constructing palaces. You know, where somebody's been like just drawing on them before they were <laughs> built into the, the building. But I can't think of any on a clay tablet. Yeah. I'm, afraid our, I'm afraid our listeners think this is really inside baseball, but I have to ask one more question. Yes, one thing you always find in... Um, not always, but you often find with uh, medieval, both medieval Russian and sort of Central and Western European documents, is um, evidence of people learning how to write. You find a, a lot of, these are especially palimpsests and things like this, but you find a lot of people that don't do it very well. And we have, we have determined that these are people who were in scribal schools that were trying to figure out how to write. You find any of that? Oh, very much so, yes. Yeah, yeah. lots of evidence of scribal I always smile when I see those because I, I feel like I've met a kindred spirit. Because I can't read them very well. <laughs> right, right. No, they, in fact, there are particular um, round documents that, for some reason, these sort of bun-shaped documents that they would uh, use in schools, where the teacher would write a line of script and then the student would write underneath it, and then you'd see again the teacher's line and then the student's line, or sometimes the teacher on the front and the student on the back. And you can really see the difference between the the professional scribe who knows what he's doing and the kid. And they were kids, you know. They went they yeah. scribal school. They started as children, um, really kind of like trying to make this stylus work where it was difficult for them. And um, there are some wonderful exercises. In fact, if it wasn't for scribal schools, it, we would know much less about things like uh, literature in mm-hmm. Mesopotamia because most of the, um, there's an argument made that most of the literary texts that survive were actually school exercises mm-hmm. where they were learning to write. And one of the things they learned to write were these various epics and uh, poems mm-hmm. and so forth. That's but um, uh, they uh, started school um, quite young. We don't know how long exactly they went to school for, but some of the exercises that they wrote were about going to school. There's a few classic stories um, that Samuel Kramer translated back in the 60s where the scribe describes waking up and going to school and telling his mom, you know, I'm going to be late, give me my lunch, and he goes off to school and he gets caned a lot. They had corporal punishment. Um, and he was told, you must only speak Sumerian and don't be late and stand up when, you know, you have to stand up and sit down when you have to sit down. And uh, he describes the curriculum, which was mostly just writing cuneiform, you know, uh, reading, writing, dictation, um, doing copying, uh, model tablets, and so forth. So it was pretty rigorous. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing in my classes this fall. For those people who are listening, that's what we're going to do. Now, the, uh, so let me let me ask a, a a question. Which you have one tantalizing. Um, it's not just one, but it's a couple tantalizing sentences in the book that um, uh, prompted the following question. You mentioned that in about 1200 BCE, things fall apart. 
Mm-hmm. What happened? Yes, that's a whole um, separate issue. And I, I thought about going into it in this book, and I thought, you know, it's just too big. Besides which, actually, quite a lot of books have been written on this. So I, I don't think it necessarily needed another one. But um, but it's a really interesting moment because uh, archaeologically, you can see that around 1200, between 1200 and 1100, there are a lot of destruction layers at sites all around the eastern Mediterranean. So a number of major cities that had been flourishing in this period that I was writing about suddenly are destroyed, torched, you know, raised to the ground. Um, The capital city of the Hittites, which was far away from the Mediterranean, was also destroyed around the same time. Mm. the uh, Babylonian kingdom um, was was conquered by an outside group, but but not the same group. So it was as though a whole lot of conquest was going on, not all by the same people, but something dramatic happened right across the Near East. And um, one theory is that it was set off by some um, climatic disaster, that there was some drought, perhaps, um, or or it could be an, an epidemic of some kind that set. Um, things sort of rolling towards disaster. One reason I think this is that there is a record in Egypt of a group of people arriving in Egypt called the Sea Peoples who um, came from apparently the Aegean region mostly, um, so the region of Greece and Crete, and that they arrived in Egypt not just to try and sort of attack Egypt, but apparently bringing their wives and children and wagons full of possessions as if they were refugees. Mm-hmm. Egypt, of course, always had a reliable source of water because it had the Nile, whereas Greece and northern Mes- uh, the northern Mediterranean region was dependent on the rain. And if there wasn't enough rain, they couldn't farm. You know, they, they didn't have a, a nice big river like the Euphrates or the, or the Nile right, running through that would provide them with water. So perhaps something in the way of a drought set these people on the move. Um, and that that became a sort of domino effect, so that although it may have been these sea peoples who were responsible for the attack on Egypt and probably also the attacks on the um, the eastern Mediterranean coast, that it may have been other peoples who were responsible for attacking, for example, the Hittite capital, but probably for the same reason. I mean, the Hittites would have been subject, if there was drought, they too were dependent on rainfall, mm-hmm. and they too might have been weakened by it. So it's, um, each of these major powers either fell or declined right around this this one century. And then they were unable to restore it. They were unable to sort of bring it back into being once it was gone. Mm -hmm. And for 200 years, there were a lot of small kingdoms, but no major power. And it wasn't until the Assyrian, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which was um, starting in the late 10th century, that sort of took over the whole Near East on a very different scale from any of the empires that had existed before that um, this era really came to an end. The the sort of um, disaster of of the 1200s came to an end with this, uh, ultimately, 200 years later, 300 years later, the the, um, Assyrians conquering the whole region. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just to connect this, I think that a lot of our listeners will uh, know a little bit about biblical chronology from the the Hebrew Bible. Is this when the... how do we connect this with what we find in the Old Testament? Yeah, the, um, the first reference to Israel comes from the late uh, New Kingdom in Egypt. Um, and uh, so there was a, a land of Israel by, oh gosh, around 1200 uh-huh. um, BCE. So that's after the end of my, what the period that yeah. I cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the Assyrians conquered Israel 
They're the bad guys of the, the yeah. They are the bad guys yeah. of the Bible, absolutely. And yeah. one of them was named Sargon after our friend Sargon. Is that Sargon. right? Okay, there yep. you go. Yeah, all right. Yeah. They're the bad guys of the Bible. Um, so Israel flourished at that time when there was this sort of lack of a, a really major power. The, the United Kingdom of Israel, um, mm-hmm. the time of, of David and Solomon, was probably during this time after the end of these <laughs> excuse me, great powers that I write about in the book. Um, Egypt and Babylonia and Mitanni and Hatti, which were these four great powers that had this uh, international relationship, but before the beginning of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Mm-hmm. And let's never forget that Moses gets the basket treatment, too. He does, and yeah. so does um, Krishna. In, Is that right? Uh, yep. And, I did not know uh, that. And I uh, and Romulus and Remus in Rome as well. I mean, they, I like they, that. No, you mentioned that in the book. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's pr- yeah. pretty amazing. I did not get the basket treatment. I was born on an Air Force base, or, I mean, an Army base. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, anyway, Amanda, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. It's a terrific book, Brotherhood of Kings, How International Relations Shaped the Ancient Near East. I encourage you to go to your nearest bookstore and buy it. Amanda, we usually close the show with what I call the traditional final question, and and that is, it's not really final in the sense of final, but, you know, uh, so, so what are you working on now? Well, I'm, right now I'm working on another book, um, also for Oxford University Press. Uh, they have a series called Very Short Introductions. Oh, yeah, I know this series. I, yeah, I read these books all the time because I'm just like a, a inveterate dilettante. <laughs> oh, they're wonderful. I mean, yeah. they're, they're only 35,000 words, and yeah. they are, um, you know, I enjoy reading the, the books in the series as well. And I'm writing the one on the engineering, so that's my That's great. For the moment. That's great. If the OU people, OU, OUP people are listening, I'd like to write one of those. Just tell me what you want me to write on. Because I love those books. I own almost all of them. Yeah, I don't, just tell me, tell me what to write on. I'll write on it, okay? There you go. Yeah, okay, anyway. And then after that, what I'm hoping to do is a, a more in-depth study. I've enjoyed writing these, um, this, the, the Brotherhood of Kings and the, um, the VSI, which are very you know, broad uh, books covering, in the case of Brotherhood of Kings, 1,000 years, in the case of the VSI, covering 3,000 years. And I want to, to look at something in more depth, but not so much as uh, necessarily a monograph like my first book, which was a very you know, um, sort of scholarly treatment of, of a particular kingdom. But I'd like to look at one of the subjects that come up in my book, but in more depth and, and sort of getting a chance to kind of spend more time there and, um, and explore the characters and the individuals and the, um, the nuances of the time a bit more in detail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Well, good luck on all those projects, and I hope that you come back on the show again. Oh, thank you very much. Amanda, thanks again for being with us today. Thank you. Okay, take care. You've been listening to an interview with Amanda Padani about her new book, Brotherhood of Kings, How International Relations Shaped the Ancient Near East. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Hope you have a great week.